Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Governance and Local Development Institute, supported by the Swedish Research Council. In this episode, we have no less than three guests with us to discuss traditional authorities in Malawi, Ghana and Latin America. First, we have Dr. Boniface Dilani from the University of Malawi, Afrobarometer and iPort Malawi. Secondly, we have John Paul Ajede, Register at the Eastern Regional House of Chiefs under the Ministry of Chiefancy and Religious Affairs in Ghana. Finally, we have Christopher Carter, an Academy Scholar at the Harvard Academy for International and Area Studies and a Research Associate at the Center on the Politics of Development at the University of California, Berkeley. The episode offers a lively discussion on traditional authorities' impact on, for example, democracy, corruption, land management and conflict resolution. As usual, the show is hosted by Professor Ellen Lust. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and don't forget to like, share and subscribe if you do. Bonnie and Chris and John Paul, thank you for joining us today and also for being in Sweden with us for these days to discuss governance and local development more generally. But today I'd like us to discuss the role of traditional authorities and to think about how they fit in with other forms of governance and democracy and the things that I think many people know a little bit more about. So maybe we can start simply by discussing who traditional authorities are in each of the contexts. We're going to be talking about Africa and Latin America. So. John Paul, would you like to start? All right, thank you very much, Ellen, and thanks to Giordi also. First time in Sweden, and I'm loving it. Yeah, for us to understand who a traditional authority or a chief is less, it predates to colonial time where people were trying to capture lands and settle. So it could also be true war that you meet some people settled on a piece of land, you fight them, you sack them, or the weaker ones join you to create a bigger family where clans and families are trying to capture more lands. The more lands you capture, the more powerful you become. And during the capture, the very strong people among them are selected to lead that group of people. And they basically become the ones we call chiefs now. Though in certain parts of Ghana, the colonial government imposed certain people on them to do the indirect rule through these people, but basically in the southern part, or generally in Ghana, these are people who capture land and some were also through discoveries of land. So these are custodians of the land and culture and heritage in Ghana. Thank you. Thanks. And just to also clarify, when you talk about sort of the original settlers, then that lineage, right, it's those and their descendants who would be eligible to become chiefs in the future, because of course we're talking about quite a bit of time, is that right? Yes, that you are very right. So the original settlers and the first person to become the chief, the descendants of such, that person becomes, or they occupy or inherit, because it's hereditary, so these are the people who inherit the stool or the office. Of that particular first chief and we have two inheritance systems in Ghana the patrilineal and the matrilineal so the patrilineal is where one inherits through the father's lineage or bloodline so you inherit the kinship of your father where we have the matrilineal you inherit we also call it nephew inheritance where one inherits through the mother's lineage so inherit the kinship from your mother's lineage and to determine the lineage in the patrilineal the first chief or the first traditional ruler, the number of male children that first settler of chief has determines the number of lineages. So if you have four male children, then you have four lineages that are eligible to ascend or occupy that position. And in matrilineal, the first chief, that's a male chief, the number of females that first chief has determines the lineage. Similarly, if it's two, then you have two lineages ascending. So you trace the genealogy to those first two children of the first settler to determine who is legible or a royal to occupy this two. Great, thank you, thanks. And Bonnie, I'd be interested to know if there are similarities, but also what there might be differences between the chieftaincy system in Ghana and in Malawi. 
Yeah, thank you, Helen. Yeah, I think listening to John Paul, there are quite a lot of similarities, especially looking at the origins of the institution of traditional leadership. They are, in our context, mostly ethnic leaders. And I think, as, as he's explaining in the case of Ghana, the origins obviously date back to who were the earliest settlers, especially among the leading ethnic groups. So in Malawi, we do have uh, traditional leadership is, uh, is at three, uh, four levels. We do have paramount traditional leaders, and paramount chiefs are essentially the ethnic clan leaders. I think there are about eight paramount chiefs in Malawi. Uh, we have, I think, the paramount chief of the Ngode people in northern Malawi, it's called Paramount Kiungu, and then we have the paramount chief for the Tumbuka people, that's Paramount Chikula Maembe, uh, and then we have paramount chief of the Ngonis in the northern part of Malawi, and this, the, the Ngonis, they actually have two paramount chiefs. So we have paramount chief in Bera, and then we have paramount chief Gomani for the Ngonis of central Malawi. And then in southern Malawi, we also have several paramount chiefs, one for the Lomwes, and that's paramount chief Kawinga, and then one for the uh, Lomwe people. That has really you know, changed, uh, has changed the hands. I'm not sure who is the current paramount chief of the Lomwe. And then we do have another paramount chief for the Sena and Mangaja people of southern Malawi, and that's paramount chief Londo. So again, as I said, I think these are ethnic leaders. But below them, they also, there's also another lower level of traditional leaders uh, who are answerable to the paramount chief based on the ethnicity. I should have mentioned that there is also the Chewa paramount chief for Malawi. But the Chewa paramount chief in Malawi is actually unique because he is, as, as an ethnic leader, the Chewas are in Malawi, Zambia, and Mozambique. So the Chewa paramount chief is actually based in Zambia, not in Malawi. Uh, so that is, I think, you know, our eighth paramount chief. So below the paramount chiefs, you have traditional authorities, or TAs as we call them. Uh, these are also senior traditional leaders uh, answerable to their ethnic or clan, I mean, ethnic leader. Below the paramount chief, I mean, the traditional authorities, we have group village heads, and these are the lower level of the traditional authority, and, uh, and then they are answerable to the traditional authority and below the group village head. So the group village head, as the name suggests, they have a group of village heads that are answerable and report to the group village head. I should just add that I think the institution of traditional leadership is also quite dynamic. Often when we have these conversations, we, have, we, we present it like it's fixed. But because of the, you know, the incentives that come with the traditional leadership, as well as I think he, you know, the increases in the population, you'll find that a, 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 someone who's a village head today, when there are so many people in their area, they will split the village and then they become a group of village head. Then the group of village head might become a, a traditional authority or some traditional authority. We haven't seen a lot of new paramount chiefs, but you also get to see uh, the emergence of new traditional authorities over time. So it is a very dynamic uh, institution, and that is constantly evolving over time. So it's a dynamic institution in terms of the, the numbers of different chiefs there are, right? We'll come back to if it's also dynamic in terms of the roles that they play. But I'm, I'm curious, so basically it's also pointing to the fact that it's very hierarchical, right? That it's really a clear hierarchy in terms of, of authority. The same thing in the case yeah, of Ghana? Similarly, we have similar hierarchies in Ghana, Section 50. It's or the Chieftaincy Act, Act 759 of 2008, clearly spells the hierarchy of chieftaincy in Ghana from the paramount chief to divisional chiefs to subdivisional chiefs to Edicrofo and other categories, classified as other categories. To explain it to general terms, I'll link paramountcy to be maybe a region or a district, sort of. So the district may have about 10 different sub-districts or sub-towns within it. So the divisional chiefs are the ones who capture or who rule the small portions of the whole district. Then we have a sub-divisional chief who also splits the division into different pieces and the decrofo also are split more. So 
the hierarchy follows similar and they all report to the paramount chief who is the overlord of that traditional area and but we have many traditional areas in Ghana over 265 traditional areas captured we have more in especially in the Volta region where we have undocumented traditional areas but the documented ones are about 265 in Ghana it's intriguing to see the similarities between Ghana and Malawi but maybe I think you know where we might be different is that from what I understand from you John Paul is that the boundaries of the traditional leaderships in Ghana are also matched with the district boundaries. No, it's overlapping. We have okay. some traditional areas that may have about three different districts within it, and we may have some districts that may also have so many, one district having about three different traditional areas within it. So okay. it doesn't really... So yeah. So in that case, I think it's similar to Malawi. Because okay. For us, I think it's also possible for a, a one district, at least administrative the district, to have within different traditional leaders, traditional authorities that are answerable to different paramount chiefs. Because as I said, the paramount chiefs are based on ethnic lineage. Yeah. So you can have a district, maybe there's a group of people from one ethnic group, they have their chief, but answerable to a different, different paramount chief. But of course, then even the traditional authorities can cut across district boundaries as well. And the Ashanti region in Ghana, or the Ashanti system, presents a different unique from, though we have about 37 paramounts within the Ashanti region, we call something the Ashanti configuration, where all these paramount chiefs are subsequent to the another paramountcy, though on the constitutional level, they are all paramount chiefs, but they all report to the Ashanti Hini. That's the only different thing in their constitution. You see all of them at the same level, but when they come customarily to the ground, all these paramount chiefs report to their overlord, who is the Asante in, in Ghana. And when we're talking about sort of the relationship between the land and the, the people and then the chiefs, you're pointing to the fact that these are kind of ethnic leaders. But those who are living on their land are not always of the same ethnicity, right? Yeah. So can you say a little bit about that relationship, about if I'm, a, if I'm a village head in a village, but you're from a different ethnicity, you're still reporting to me, I'm, you're still under, under my authority, or, or is it that you're sort of independent? How do we, how do we understand that? Yeah, so, so I think, again, what is similar with, with my colleague from Ghana is so how, like in Malawi, we call chiefs Gogo Chalo. Gogo is basically a grandparent, but Chalo means land. So when they are addressed, even if it's a young person who is the chief, they will still be addressed as Gogo because of the position that they own. So of course, the chieftaincy is attached to land. But you're right that because of you know, intermarriages and so you know, people moving around, you, you end up with a, a junior chief who holds land, but answerable to a traditional authority that belongs to a different ethnic group. I guess it speaks to the flexibility and how accommodating the institution is, and that's why I like the fact that it is a very dynamic institution. But yes, so technically the traditional authority in our context is the, the ultimate person who has ownership of the land in their territories. Even if they have some junior chiefs that are not from their own ethnic group, they technically, I think, they are in, you know, as in a delegated authority from the traditional authority who himself or herself is also exercising delegated authority from the paramount chief. So in our case, the paramount chiefs are pretty powerful because they can dismiss uh, traditional authorities and even junior leaders, or they can also recommend at least those who gets it to assume, to succeed a particular position, especially when a vacancy occurs. All right. Traditional leaders are very much revered in Ghana, so irrespective of your tribe, so far as you are on his land, you need to accord him that needed respect. And what these traditional leaders do or invented is to create what we call the tribal chiefs, who are the foreigners on their land, so they get a leader. So those yeah. people could be classified among the other chiefs to help them rule their people because sometimes there could be language barriers. 
But if they are able to get a leader, they are able to control this because some of them is people who could cause mayhem in the community. So they are able to curtail such people through creating a leader for those various tribes. So irrespective of your tribe, so far as you're on the land of someone, you need to respect and follow the tradition and custom of that land or that jurisdiction that you find yourself on. Thank you. Thanks. Chris, tell us how you're reflecting on, on what you see in Latin America compared to this. Yeah, I think it's quite different. Of course, I'm speaking in general terms. There's enormous variation, but generally there's much less hierarchy both within communities and across communities as well. I mean, you can't really separate the concept of traditional governance in Latin America from indigenous governance. So most of the traditional institutions are housed within indigenous communities, which are quite small. And institutions operate at the level of those communities. So we're talking about communities of between 20 and 500 people in many cases. And each of those communities will generally have one of three traditional institutions. The first is a deliberative assembly in which the whole community, sometimes just the male population, sometimes the entire adult population, can come together to make decisions about what projects will be conducted within the community. There's often a council of elders in addition to the deliberative assembly, and this council has the ultimate say in almost all decision-making. And these are people that are older members of the community, as you might guess, who have completed what are called cargos, or services, to the community throughout their lifetime. And after one performs enough services to the community, over the course of their lifetime, they may eventually reach the stage of being an elder in the community, and that's sort of a top position. The last institution we have within these communities are what I suppose is most similar to a chief, and it's called a community president often. Sometimes it has a more creative name. But this is the sort of descendant of the traditional chief during the colonial period. And, but it's now a three-year position in many cases, maybe three to five years, and it's elected <laughs> among community members. And ultimately, the president has important authority, especially as an intermediary, as I assume we'll talk about maybe a little later, with local governments. But the ultimate decision maker in many communities that I study, at least in Peru and Mexico, is this council of elders, which might be formal or informal. And across communities, we see very little of the sort of hierarchy that you're mentioning in the cases of Malawi and Ghana. We don't have sort of leaders that operate at the level of an ethnic group or linguistic group within or across indigenous communities. When you talked about that the president, you said, was from kind of the original settlers, but is there a, this notion of a royal family, of a set of people from whom that presidency can be chosen? Or you get a lot of migration and new people coming in, can you suddenly have the president be some, from somebody who wasn't from that original lineage settling the land? So at, these communities originated as kinship groups. Everyone was from the same sort of descendant, technically. And these were community groups. And through intermarriage, they got bigger. And sometimes they got smaller as people moved out. But nowadays, it's a communal group. There's not a sense of sort of a kinship or fictive kinship or lineage by leaders. Anyone can serve as leaders. In my experience, it's generally males between about 30 and 50 years old. Other males that are older than that have either ascended to the Council of Elders, which is a more powerful position, or simply just aren't in the community anymore. But it's very difficult to actually move into communities because in order to be a member of communities, you either have to marry a member of the community or you have to be born there. So okay. migration into the community is, is fairly difficult. So just to be clear, that. Is community a, a geographic center, or is community simply meaning about being a, a part of this group? It's both, really. I mean, it's, it's, it's got a territorial connotation. All communities are based on at least an original piece of communal land that was either you know, sort of inhabited from time immemorial or reassigned during the colonial period through the reduction program of the, the Spanish colonizers. So there's a, there's a territorial component to it. These are units. They're not formal units of government, but they're recognized units by the government. They're similar to a village in many ways. They're very small. But there's also a membership-based organization component to it, where I have to be a member of the community in order to vote, make decisions. It's not easy for people to move into the community, and even if they move onto the land owned by the community, they're not allowed to participate in most of the communal decision-making. Okay, okay. Which is, how does that compare? Actually, I mean, I was listening to Chris, that, it, it, that sounds more similar to 
the traditional leadership in Kenya, or at least in some parts of Kenya. Because Kenya doesn't have the kind of traditional leadership that we have in Malawi or Ghana. So sometimes I think, you know, we think traditional leadership, even on the African continent, as vast as it is, is similar, but it is usually not. Because in Kenya, traditional leaders are technically elders in the community. So once you, if you grow old, you become a member of the traditional leadership. It's not by inheritance, like is the case in Malawi, Zambia, or as you mean, Ghana. So in this context, anyone can be a traditional leader, uh, so long as you, you've qualified, I think, as, as an elder in the community. The issue of who, you know, the democratic election of leadership, unfortunately, that doesn't <laughs> apply in most of our context. I think you recall, Ellen, I think in, during the, when we did the study, the JLD study in 2016, we only came across one case of a traditional leader that was elected. And I think this was a community that had lived at, a, at an agricultural farm, and then they'd been given some land to settle afterwards. So because all of them were coming from different groups, they, the way they decided to identify their traditional leader was to force. So I think that, that is quite unique in our case because mostly traditional leadership position is an inherited position. In, in some ways, I think, you know, similar to maybe obviously Ghana in terms of the family systems as well. If you are matrilineal, it follows the matrilineal line. But in our case, perhaps I think the way it works, the matrilineal traditions is that the son of the sister to the chief, the eldest sister, is the one who inherits the, the traditional leadership uh, in our case. Now, we have a really an interesting saying, or at least especially the Chewas who are so matrilineal and the largest ethnic group in our context, they'll tell you that the only, the surest way to ensure that the lineage stays in the family, it has to follow the female line, not the male line, because they tell you that only the mother knows who the father of the children is. Mm -hmm. So if you go, by going the matrilineal way, they say you are assured that you are keeping the lineage in the family, whereas if you're going with the male line, that is there, they say you, you might, you can't really guarantee that you're keeping the traditional leadership in the original lineage. I'm tempted to believe that the account speaking community in Ghana and Malawi may be coming from the same source. <laughs> but we, one common case of the only outlier case in Ghana where a chief or traditional leader is elected or appointed, it's only in a community called Abukubi. It's a Christian community, presbyters. And among them, we don't have inheritance. So among the church, they set a committee who looks for maybe a, a credible person within them who is maybe educated. And the committee vets a group of people and appoints anyone. So that's the only case. It's called, the area is called Abukubi in the, the West community of Ghana. That's the only appointment of traditional leader, not based on royal blood or kinship or anything. So maybe that's the only case that we may say that it's similar to that's your case. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it raises the question of whether elected leaders are in fact traditional at all. And is that the right word to use yeah. for positions yeah. in which a leader is elected or appointed, certainly in the Weberian sense of yeah. where authority and legitimacy is, it seems a little bit different than these other sources. Like a council of elders, which isn't elected or appointed, but sort of ascended to, might be yeah. closer to a traditional institution or traditional source of authority. But that's interesting to me because the common point is this sort of linkage between rule and land, right? Which is also very interesting because when we think of states and state institutions, right, then that's, of course, also part of that linkage. But Chris, you were saying that it's very difficult to be able to get land in these traditional communities. And yet, at least my understanding in the Ghanaian and, and the Malawian cases is there's some chiefs who are selling land, that there's quite a bit of migration in and out. So it's, it may be that there's still an, a linkage between authority and land, but there seems to be a lot more in migration of outside groups, if you will, in the Ghanaian and Malawian cases, at least, again, to my understanding, than there is in the cases that you're describing. And so I'm curious to first know if I'm wrong, because it wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility, but, but also to just think about a little bit what that means in 
if, if there is this coming in versus a real exclusionary case in, in Latin America. Yeah, land distribution in Ghana, we have two main types, and it's also based on the clans or the tribes. We have the patrilinear area, and the system within the patrilinear is very different from the matrilinear. Patrilinear areas usually have family lands. So the head of the family is the one who controls the land. But in the matrilinear area, lands are communally owned. So the land belongs to the whole community, but it's held in trust by the chief. So the chief is the one who manages the land on behalf of the community. But what is supposed to happen is, if I need a land within the matrilinear area, I'm supposed to send, we call it drink fee. I'm supposed to send a token to the chief through drink so that he gives me a parcel of the land to either cultivate or develop, maybe a building a house or something. But now what's happening is that instead of that token fee of drink or something small, they are now selling the land to individuals, even their own subjects. And, and the idea shapes these sort of things. Now the citizen, my emphasis focused on accountability of chiefs and customer land secretariat. The citizens or subjects think that the land belongs to the chief. And the chief also took advantage, or the chiefs take advantage of that perception of the subjects and also accepted it that the land belongs to him. So if the land belongs to him, then he controls the land and the resources and everything that comes from it. But it's more structured within the patrilineal, which is we have every family having their family land. So maybe your father giving you a parcel of land, there is less conflict or nothing to demand accountability about as compared to the matrilineal that the subjects sometimes feel that the chiefs are misusing their land, but they also don't have that courage to go and demand accountability from these chiefs because of the power that these chiefs hold that they can even customarily sanction you for demanding for accountability from them. Um, interesting. I mean, for us, I think the chiefs technically, yes, control the land. But the families, whether matrilineal or patrilineal, technically own the land that their families uh, cultivate. So even though the chief might have their, the chiefs also have their own land, not mine, they have their own land, and usually because these are the earliest settlers, they might have the most land in the community, and they can share some of that, especially when they have a lot of idle land, they can share, they can allocate that to some people who come and ask for land from them. But, you know, with the increasing population and over time, there's less and less available land that the chiefs can give out. But even though I think as a family we own our land and we can actually sell that land, so we have actually, you know, all the rights to that land. But because it falls under this village, we still have to go to the village head to say, I am selling this land to John Paul and I'm selling it at this value and then the chief will also get a share of the sale price. That's that's how it works. So as but the chief cannot simply go come to my house and say, okay, I'm selling this piece of land, you know, that is not going to happen. But, yeah, you know, in theory, they could do that. So they are the custodians of land to the extent that they, they have jurisdiction over all the land in the area, but they certainly cannot sell family land. I think that's maybe the difference that we have. But coming back, I think, to Chris, Again, I think I just wanted to emphasize this point that traditional leadership in Africa is different from country to country. Because I think from what you say, Tanzania also comes to mind. I mean, you know, in Tanzania, because the government at independence tried to abolish the traditional leadership. I think as, as I think it did, I know Mozambique, I mean, and I'm sure there are other cases that I'm not familiar with. So, but in Tanzania, because they were so very cautious of the possible resistance that the government could face by abolishing traditional leadership, what they did was to create public positions, so converted traditional leadership into essentially a public position with a salary. Uh, so of course, over time, people know so that this is the lineage. So people still, you know, with the new traditional leaders still come from the old families of traditional leaders, but they technically now public uh, public officials in in Mozambique. They also tried it to they did abolish traditional leadership, but we've seen a kind of a revival of traditional leadership because the opposition in Mozambique had used 
this very issue of traditional leadership to say what for us we will reestablish traditional leadership and i think the government the government realized that they might lose the popularity from this so then they started to recognize the traditional leadership again although of course having gone for so many decades without traditional leadership the the way people respond to that traditional leadership is different i think from the way malawians i'm sure kenyans who we view, view and value traditional leadership is so very different it's interesting because actually it sounds the the case of Tanzania sounds very similar to what happened in Latin America following the colonial period because during the colonial period the Spanish crown couldn't actually collect a head tax on indigenous citizens the tribute it was called during the time the Indian tribute they relied on local indigenous chiefs to collect the tribute for them in exchange the crown guaranteed access to communal lands, protected communal lands from settlers, and guaranteed recognition of the authority of these local leaders. But after the colonial period, the new governments, the newly independent governments said, we can't have indigenous chiefs on our territory. We have to project state power directly and began undermining these offices in a very similar way to what you're talking about. So these, what's been called in the literature, tributary pacts yeah. that arose in the colonial period were sort of ended at independence and then we see a subsequent erosion of indigenous authority in this position of the chief fundamentally changes into its more modern iteration. Yeah. In the case of Ghana, traditional leadership is now more formalized in a way that is being enshrined in the constitution of Ghana and a whole act created for the chieftaincy institution. And even in the constitution, before the president makes some appointment at the local level, he must do that appointment in consultation with the traditional leaders. So you cannot appoint maybe the mayor in court without consulting the traditional leader or the chiefs. And even now chiefs are demanding to have a, a chamber in parliament so that decision making, the parliamentarians would have to also consult them to make certain decisions and clear the constitution even defines who a chief is in Ghana. Section 57 of the Act says that a person must be hailing from the appropriate family or lineage and must be nominated, selected before and told according to custom. Though they admit that there should be some part of custom, they just want to formalize it in a way by making it very solid within the chieftaincy system and tradition in Ghana. It's also formalized in Malawi, but it does, doesn't stop succession in patriots from taking place as I'm sure is the case in Ghana. I mean we a few a few weeks back I think actually they were installing one of the paramount chieftains in Malawi and the, up to the last minute there was a, there was uncertainty on whether the, the actual that function was going to go ahead because there was there were two two families that were contesting I think that they were the rightful Heirs to, to, to that chieftaincy. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's still, yes, it remains a very powerful institution, but uh, you still end up with these kind of problems. But in our case, the Constitution, I think, initially made provision for a Senate that would have included one elected member from each district and one traditional chief from each district. But uh, the National Assembly, I think, upon Coming into by 1994, they they didn't take they didn't abolish the Senate, but they just said we don't have the resources to run the the, the Senate. So that is basically been held in abeyance since 1994. So yeah, I mean it's there. There's a Chiefs Act, but uh, maybe not at the same length. I think as you have in the in the Ghana case, where it's it's you have I take it you have an extensive chapter on on the Chiefs in the Ghana. Constitution. A question for you, Bonnie, because it strikes me that in Ghana, I mean, the fact that the traditional authorities have the basically have to accept the mayor. I mean, that they have the, the essentially also the right to refuse to accept the mayor. In, in what you're saying, if if you're looking at appointing a, a district commissioner, for example, in Malawi, do they have to actually get the acceptance of the tra traditional authorities by law in order to install a district commissioner? No, they don't. I mean, the district commissioner is a purely administrative position that the chiefs really don't have much say over the choice of the district commissioner. But the district commissioner 
is the local officer that is responsible for overseeing all the affairs of the traditional leaders. Uh, so, yeah, usually I think what, if, if what might happen is if the chiefs are not happy with a particular district commissioner, they could put pressure on the Ministry of Local Government, which is responsible for managing and coordinating traditional lives. Then they can uh, put the pressure on them that, no, we don't want this person in our area. And, they, and of course, they are powerful institutions, and sometimes government will cave in and just say, okay, we are going to transfer you. But in terms of appointment, the district commission, uh, the, the chiefs really don't have uh, much say on the choices. Which is slightly different, right? So it seems yeah. that the, the, the traditional authorities in Ghana are more powerful than in, in Malawi, and certainly they are more powerful than those in, in both Kenya, but also in, in the case of Latin America that you're looking at. Can we talk a little bit about what those powers are? What can they actually do in the, on the ground? Maybe, Chris, start with Latin America and, and what do they do there? Sure. I would say the most important thing is, is, is sort of similar is, is land management, particularly communal land management. The community president and council of elders have an incredible role in managing who has access to communal land and not. And in these cases, communal land is indivisible and inalienable, and it can't be legally bought or sold. So sometimes community members have their de facto private piece of land, but land can be bought and sold in the same way. So that's one important thing, and it gives community leaders an enormous amount of leverage over community members to perform their second big responsibility, which is to organize collective action among community members, things like communal labor project, projects. So if the main road connecting the community to the municipal capital is sort of in really bad shape, they'll organize you know, workers to go and try to fix the road community members. And if community members don't participate, they could be socially sanctioned, they could be whipped in the town square, or they could lose their access to communal land. Previously, a big responsibility they had was to defend the community against external threats, and that still is true in cases where there are you know, communities set on resource-rich land and mining companies are attempting to take you know, resources from these communities. Uh, that's less an important responsibility in the last you know, 30 or 40 years, but it is still something that community leaders do. But I would say those are the two main responsibilities, organizing collective action and relatedly mediating access to communally held land. What, what cuts across with Chris is the land management that I explained earlier. And aside the land management or land distribution, one major role that they play is conflict resolution. The Constitution of Ghana makes it clear that it's only chief or the judicial committee that can determine matters affecting chieftaincy. So the chiefs themselves now act as judges in their judicial committee. So at the traditional council, we have the judicial committee or the traditional council being manned by either three or five chiefs to determine any petition that comes pertaining to instrument or the position of a chief. But they know the custom, so they don't send those cases to the high courts. So the chiefs now act. That's why the designation of either officers is registrar. So we act as if it's a mini court where the chiefs sit and determine such matters with lawyers coming in to defend other chiefs or other parties and the regional house also has the same judicial committee same as national house or the regional house we have all the paramount chiefs who are now the presidents of the traditional councils being members of the regional houses of chiefs and at the national house we appoint the president the vice and three other making five members from the regional houses of chiefs forming the national house of chiefs and their major role is the judicial role that they play and the supreme court acting as the appellate jurisdiction for the national house so even conflicts could trigger from the traditional council and end up at the supreme court and aside this judicial which is like a formalized rule given to them as judges they also play the customary conflict resolution roles and we have what we call the maybe at the national level where we could even have chiefs coming in to settle issues nationally. I remember where we had election in Ghana and there was conflict between the two main political parties. It took one of the chiefs to call these two political party leaders to talk to their people. So they play that major influential role. When things are getting so tough, the citizens tend to the chiefs 
to that's the, where the, also the trust comes in. And aside at that national level that they could control these politicians, they also play that intra-traditional area roles. There was a conflict in the northern part of Ghana, which lasted for so many years, killing and burning of houses and the rest. It took some of these prominent chiefs from other traditional areas as committees to resolve the issues at the north and at their own local level. We have families and other factions sending their matters to these chiefs to and they act as an ADR that sometimes they can firstly send their linguists to you to bring you to the palace, though they also come with some little remuneration you would have to go with bottles of shinab if you are found guilty you may have to pay a sheep or a ram <laughs> or a goat and the rest to these chiefs but they actually hold peace they actually make sure that there is no conflict though the institution is stuck as a conflict zone because you would always hear of two factions fighting and creating mess or chaos within the same community because of succession issues but if they are to play their rules very well, then they are the maybe ambassadors of peace within the country. And as I said that they are the custodians of culture and heritage. I believe that if you want to really know the history of your community, you would have to go to the chief who know much about their custom. Maybe they still dress in the colonial way. You see a chief marking cloth instead of dressing formally in Ghana. So when they sit in state, you see the regalia or the West who sells the tradition and it serves as source of tourism as well for foreigners or people who don't know much about the tradition of people. So if they play their role very well, then they are actually selling the heritage of their communities or their countries because hardly would you see a formal person maybe wearing smoke on a normal day, but a chief in the North would have to wear the smoke or sit on his uh, skin but we all use our foreign chairs and the rest. So they sell that message of where we come from. And they are the only ones. And if we scrap off that institution, then we lose our originality sort of because now we would be indoctrinated sort of and don't really point out to where we come in from. And they sort of serve as maybe the mouthpiece for their citizens before someone goes to campaign, a politician goes to campaign in a community, you would have to go seeking permission from the chief that want to talk to your people, give me your blessings, let me go and campaign to your people. And sometimes if the chief says no, they may not have the permission to go campaign to the, the people in their community. And the chiefs also use maybe their festivals to let the government know the problems of their people so that they can bring development. Some also solicit for funds. You see that a chief coming, traveling outside, wants to meet that community out abroad so that they can mobilize funds to go back to develop their community and they play such roles fantastically. Though I wouldn't sit here and say that it doesn't come with some issues and nobody will be <laughs> large at me. But the, the, their role cannot be overemphasized here. Yeah, so um, I think the roles of chiefs in Malawi are similar somewhat to what I think uh, John Boy is highlighting. As I said, I mean, they are known as uh, the grandparents of the land. But of course, increasingly, they also own very little land. So as much as this is supposed to be their main role, in reality, I think chiefs are much more increasingly viewed as just the custodians of culture and traditions, and less so, less so I think, the managers of the land. Um, they are also seen as maybe agents of development at the local level. So governments, especially, I think, for government or even uh, members of parliament and other local leaders, where it is difficult for them to consult and each and every person, they will just speak to the to the local leaders and and then on the understanding that the local leaders know what is going on in their communities and and then government will bring about you know development interventions. The dispute resolution is a major role that also our traditional leaders do play, and and I think this is also a function of either being, there being very few uh, dispute resolution mechanisms, I think at least 
at the state level, they are not there on the ground. So most disputes at the local level will, will go to the village head and then their decisions usually are final and uh, and usually people because they, they do have they do enjoy quite a lot of legitimacy and acceptance. So people will also uh, accept I think uh, the the decisions that they make. I should just go back I think on the issue of land. Maybe the only land that it is really have a lot of control and influence over in Malawi is the graveyard. You're not gonna get buried if the chief says you're not gonna be buried in, a, in my place. So that that if they have I think much control over land that is I think the land that that they have. So in terms of I think now because they have very little land you know that they can control, they are usually the chiefs are usually uh custody, I mean like they serve as witnesses when there are people are selling land to each other, the village head or the chief will will sign as a witness to say yes, this person is indeed selling new land that belongs to their family. Um, but again, I, I, I keep on going back to the point that traditional leaders and the power and influence they have is very different across the continent. In yeah. Uganda, the Kabaka in, in Uganda is a very powerful institution. That it, uh, actually, the Baganda people recognize this, there is no higher authority than the Kabaka in Uganda. So if he, the Kabaka of the Baganda, the Baganda people is in the same place as the president of Uganda, they will recognize the Kabaka as the most important person in any gathering. So you actually, very rarely, you see the president of Uganda and the Kabaka under the same the same functions because the president of Uganda doesn't like to have his own authority question and the challenge that there's someone uh, you know more superior to him. So it, it I think there's all that variation across, uh, across even within Malawi. I think some of the traditional leaders, even the paramount chiefs, are much more powerful than others. So some in our case are actually. Um, they they get their positions I think through the hereditary lineage, but there are some paramount chiefs that are appointed by the state. So they are chiefs, traditionally leaders in their own right, but they, you know to be appointed as a paramount chief, it has to be more political than traditional. So I have to ask you this. You mentioned that if you are a candidate and you want to campaign in an area that you may have to go and ask the chief to have permission to, to speak to his people. Some people could argue that that's a bit contra sort of democracy where the idea should be that, you know, everybody has a voice and everybody is kind of equal. And you, you've also referred to them as subjects, right? This is a very different relationship than, than we think in democracy. So I'd like to hear a little bit your thoughts about the compatibility or the tensions between democracy on the one hand and the traditional authorities and on the other. Okay. Do you want to go first? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I actually think the institution of traditional leadership is one of the greatest impediment to the growth of democracy on the African continent. I, I think traditional leaderships, by their nature, obviously being a hereditary institution, is not a democratic institution, with very few exceptions. Now, granted, they do enjoy quite a lot of legitimacy among most people on the continent. So it is not an easy institution to reconcile with democratic institutions. What, what I think traditional leadership does is to prevent, I think, the growth of a culture amongst most of our citizens to hold our elected leaders accountable and to pressurize governments to deliver the kind of services that right now traditional leaderships are offering. So we are talking about dispute resolution, for example. Part of the reason that traditional leadership fill this gap is because there are no courts that are accessible to most ordinary citizens. So the traditional leadership is the only institution that is closest to the people. But because it is there, people go there. But if if we were to take it out, then I assume people will then begin to demand this service from government. But right now, because someone is filling in that gap. There is no that demand really from below to say, give us this service. But remember, I think most of these people are also appointed for life. 
I mean, they, you, you assume the traditional leadership and you hold that position for life. And then, on the other hand, we have, you know, all these new institutions where we are trying to limit presidents and our leaders to save for no more than two terms. Now, our leaders really, you know, you see most of our presidents when they seek to abolish the presidential term limit clauses, they appeal to this sense of traditional leadership and say, look, if this is just a traditional leader at a local level, they are in that position for life. And here I am, you're president, I'm like the national chief, why should I be limited to to two terms? And a lot of, of, of people really relate to that, that yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense, why should the president really just be in office for such a brief period when this hour we are used to having traditional leaders that are that are there for life. And then this institution over time has also become very corrupt. And actually, even in, in the Afro-Parameter Public Opinion Service, you know, they tell us that people tell us that traditional leaders are very corrupt, but we still trust trust them, which is kind of a paradox that how do you trust an institution that is so corrupt. I think the points that I think Jean Paul is making, I think I can also relate to them in Malawi, where traditional leaders will tell you whether, will tell political leaders whether they can campaign in their areas or not. But in a, in a, in a democracy, you do not want the traditional leader to be a barrier to decide who can campaign and who cannot campaign in their area. So. It is it is a huge problem, I think, for the growth and consolidation of democracy on the continent. I know Jean Paul has a much more positive view, but I'm sure we can agree that they they, they do stand in the way of democracy on the continent. I, I would say that maybe traditional leaders cannot directly tell a politician not to campaign in his jurisdiction, but the politicians also try to take advantage of the reference for this authority or traditional authority to appeal to the, the conscience of the people because people revere chiefs or traditional leaders so much that if you are in the bad book of the chief, that means the whole citizens or those who revere their chief would also not be maybe aligned to you politically, sort of. So the, it's just like a customary recognition for the office of the chief that I want to come and seek vote from your people. So if I come and I meet you, then indirectly your people are going to sort of vote for me. And I believe that the constitution has also become pre-colonial time, there were a lot of undemocratic ways that chieftaincy system was running. The position of chief was arbitrary that any the higher rank chiefs could at any point in time depose their lower rank chiefs but now the constitution strictly say that before a chief is deposed then you would have to file a petition before the judicial committee and now gives them that natural justice system so that and you know the paramount chief that that are Nemojides is no more experienced where so the paramount chief will sit on his own case, though they sometimes influence the judicial committee members to rule in their line, but he himself is not sitting to determine a matter against him. Maybe if a chief, a lower rank chief, disrespects the paramount chief and the divisional chiefs are the ones sitting on the case. Technically, they may rule in favor of the chief, but natural justices that do not be a judge in your own cause, so you cannot sit on your own case. So the constitution, though trying to streamline things, culture sometimes overlap the constitution and the issue is who do the people trust? That's a major issue for us to think about. Politicians would come and go two terms, cyclical term, NDC comes eight years, they go, MPP come eight years, they go, but the chief is expected to stay till he dies, unless there is abdication or deposition. So the people are living with this chief for 30 years, 50 years, 60 years, the same person. He knows his institutional memory of that community, but the politician may come and pursue only his political agenda and go. So the people trust these traditional authorities more than the government. 
And sometimes we know how the arms of government are influenced by the executive. Maybe now there's coming for constitutional review in Ghana because it's believed that the executive has so much power. And now they are using such powers to influence the judiciary and all other. So now the people believe that if they go to the court system, maybe if it's against a politician, it may go in favor of the incumbent. So let me go my traditional way and I trust in what he says is my lord. He will live till he dies, so let me respect whoever he says. But one interesting thing now is we call it blood plus plus. Despite the definition that you must be from a particular lineage, now families are seeing that if you are not educated, now the chief represents the community. Maybe you need to have some level of education. So despite that you are a royal, that you are eligible to ascend that office, you need to have some level of education because you are sending documents to transfer land business and the rest you are trying to appeal to external donors communities to bring development how do you interact with them how do you understand this concept so now families are trying to come for chiefs or candidates who are educated to ascend the stool so that is sort of trying to make the institution look better i must also admit that there are corruption and these people are also being influenced by the politicians to they are politicians yeah and and i'll tell you that the actual the actual politics begins in the palace or oh, the palaces that's where the real politics happens so because sometimes before you go for meetings it is decided what you have to say what you have to do and the rest and the thing is that this is the paramount chief he's untouchable you can't say anything against the paramount chief. Though those aspects sort of are contrary to what democracy preaches, but this is what we have as a heritage that people want to protect. But the education, the constitution is trying to make it look better. It cannot be the best, but I don't think that we need to scrap it off totally. They are such an opportunistic institution. I should say <laughs> yeah. this, like, during the colonial era, you know, traditional leaders basically took sides with the colonial administration for the most part. So during the independence struggle, the nationalist movements, I, I think this is where across the entire continent, committed to get rid of the traditional leadership. And that's why in countries like in Tanzania, in Mozambique, they actually went ahead with, the, with this decision. But I think for the most part, because the, the new administration uh, even though the, the, the independence the independence governments, even though they were anti-traditional leaders in the beginning, they also realized that this is an institution that they could use to their advantage. And they, you know, quickly they forgot the promises to get rid of them. In the Malawi case, we actually had a parallel legal structure where the government created what was called the traditional court system. And the most, mostly, I think, political opponents of the regime at the time would be tried by the traditional leaders. And you have all these chiefs that would sleep throughout the entire cases and then just wake up to, to, to pass a judgment <laughs> of duty. The, the evidence be done. So then I think during again the independence movement, I mean the democratic movements in the 1990s, there was again that renewed call to say, you know what, this institution was also selling us out to the authoritarian regime, we're going to get rid of it. And then again, they realized that, you know, we can also use these people to our advantage. So this kind of opportunism, you wonder that increasingly traditional leaders are serving their own interests and not the interests of the people, even if they claim to be doing that. But I, I would agree, I think, in terms of the tourism value of traditional leaders. I think in, in, in Wakadugu, I think the, the king of the Mure people, is it every Thursday or Saturday, they have this event, I think, that it's quite a major event in the morning. You got to go at six in the morning and usually, you know, the chief comes in and he, I think he wants you to go out to fight and then there are some people who stop him from going. <laughs> I wish they would just let him go and say, go and fight and get yourself killed in battle. But <laughs> You're so <laughs> negative. Before Chris comes in, uh, the rational choice institutional theorists will definitely tell you that every human being would move for his 
parochial interest. So, so far as they are human beings, the politicians are human beings, the chiefs are also human beings. So, despite the general good or the intent, they would definitely serve their personal interest. There are some chiefs who would have the opportunity instead of fighting for the community, they are rather fighting for their pocket, they are looking for resources, they are looking for to be because they believe that okay the resources are for me let me enrich myself this is my time to also enjoy but the land is actually for the whole people so definitely we cannot exclude those parochial interests from natu natural institutions but like you say some it's all <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> you know, just to add another region into the mix though mm. so at least in a place like jordan the the multi-party democracy which is not jordanism remains authoritarian right but the the sort of reopening of parliament actually a lot of people would argue it increased the role and the strength of tribal leaders, right? Because for exactly this reason, this relationship between politicians who want to use traditional authorities, have we seen the same thing in Malawi and, and in Ghana where there's a sense of because of the parties that, it, yes, you would think that it would weaken democracy, but rather that what's happening is it may in some ways be giving a, a yet another role to, to the traditional authorities? I think that the politicians think the traditional leaders have a lot more influence now in the democratic context. But I think the reality is that in gone are the days when people just listen to their traditional chief who says, okay, go vote for Bonnie Dulani. If the people don't like Bonnie Dulani, they're not going to vote for him. Just but they like him. The chief has <laughs> said so. so I, and I think we actually see this in, in our service that he, very few people would, would tell you that they will vote according to what the village head has told them. And if anything, you know, it can also have a backfire effect working with the traditional leaders because there have been cases where governments have sought to, to, to get the favors of traditional leaders. Actually, right now, there's a major debate going on. This government is promising to build the houses for all traditional authorities in Malawi. But you see, this is just one family. So you might get the support of that one family, but if the majority of the people in these communities are struggling, they will look at this study, okay, you are supporting that household, that family, they will vote for you, but we want. It would have been better if you actually had spread, I think, that money in the entire community rather than giving it to, to one, one household that just happens to be traditional leaders. Okay. I would say, Chris, maybe you want to say something so that before I come in, or can I continue? All right. I would say that the politicians are taking advantage of the tribes to manage the people. I'll put Ghana in perspective. You know, NDC, we have two main political parties, the NDC and the NPP, and the leader of the NDC came from the voter region as J.J. Rowling, so you would see naturally the Votarians or the Volta tribe, the Ewes, aligning themselves to NDC and the MPP, which originated from the UP and the Buzia uh, Dombo tradition, uh, the Akan speaking community. So sometimes you would see that maybe something happens within the Volta tribe, then quickly the, those who align would quickly want to respond. Maybe there is flat in the Volta region, then you quickly see the uh, leader of the NDC sending relief items while the government is there, or something happens within the account speaking tribe, and maybe the MP people quickly want to respond. So they are trying to use such polit uh, tribal polarization to play the consciousness of the people because it's almost split now that the patrilineal people may align themselves to the NDC. So now the MPP is trying to get uh, neutralized such votes by trying to appoint their uh, vice presidents or uh, running mates from the North because the North used to be the special voting area for the NDC as well. A voter region cannot be disputed. But when you come to the Ashanti-speaking community, they are also more aligned to the MPP. So the politicians are playing on such tribal lines to get votes or to rule their people. Chris, is there any, any of this <laughs> sort of feels like it, it, it resonates with, with the cases you know? 
A little bit. I mean, the, the Peruvian case, we've seen such a proliferation of political parties that this gatekeeping function we were talking about earlier has actually been an important way of disseminating information to communities and limiting the sort of information pressures on community members. Because ultimately, most politics among communities is, is centered around the municipality, which is the lowest level of subnational um, administration in Peru. So the important function of, of the community president is to be the sort of intermediary between the community and the mayor in demanding public works and mobilizing the community to make demands on the mayor. So much like what Cape Baldwin found in Zambia, these partnerships are really important for development. And a lot of times in my conversations with community members, they say we would rather the community president decide who they can work with best and tell us who that person is, rather than us trying to decide independently who that person might be. Um, and there's another important sort of function of this gatekeeping role that relates directly to the fact that these are primarily indigenous communities that have historically been exploited by outsiders. So this gatekeeping function isn't just for politics. When I go into interviews in indigenous communities, I have to first seek the, the permission of the president, of course, because these are communities that traditionally haven't been treated well by outsiders and haven't benefited from most contact with outsiders. So there's an important function that gatekeeping serves there too, not just with politicians, but more generally. And finally, the point about corruption is an interesting one. I think the sort of particularities of the, the Latin American case and the Peruvian case specifically are informative in some ways. I haven't heard much from community members that there's a thought that community presidents are corrupt or, or stealing funds or you know misappropriating funds they're getting from the municipal government. And it's because these communities are so small that accountability is pretty high. And precisely because of this idea that you're elected every three years and eventually you've got to go back to just being a normal member of the community, social sanctioning is very strong. And if you start stealing money that's intended for the community, it might benefit you in the short term, but it's not going to benefit you in the long term because eventually almost all community presidents are just going to go back and live amongst community members. And it's going to be pretty obvious when you get you know, the nicest house on the block where that money came from. I think that's the traditional authority structure that Bonnie is hoping to see, actually. Well, you know, democracy, you're going to kick them out if they are corrupt and they are not delivering, not our type of traditional leadership. Yeah. No, I think that, you know, we could have this discussion forever because I find it incredibly fascinating. And I also realize that this, um, the issue especially of the role of traditional authorities and democracy is a very hot topic. And I'm, I'm not sure we can, we can resolve it in one afternoon. Um, but I want to thank you all for for joining and, and discussing it and for your lively, uh, lively debate over this issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Please like and share the episode if you enjoyed it. And feel free to drop us a note on any of our socials on what you would like to hear more about in our upcoming episode. We love to hear from you.